Welcome to Four Quarter Lives and to exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives for ourselves, our couples, for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg Cox. To launch season three of our Four Quarter Lives podcast, I want to take a broad look at what we mean by aging, what it impacts, and how that varies around the globe. But I'll start with a certain slice of aging, what we call midlife. What is it? And why is it suddenly trendy and talked about? I talk with Catherine Foote and we plunge into the theme of midlife transitions, or what in the UK is often referred to as midlife MOTs, a reference to the annual checkup that every car gets. Why not your life? Catherine is the director of Phoenix Insight, a think tank set up in 2021 with the Phoenix Group, one of the UK's leading pensions and savings groups. She brings her two decades of research and policy expertise in aging and longevity to a simple question. What is it that people need to prepare for much longer careers and lives? UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says everyone should have a midlife MOT. But what is it? Who should deliver it? Where and how? Catherine Foote has some ideas. So today, thanks so much to Catherine Foote for joining us on Four Quarter Lives. And the theme of this conversation today, Catherine, thanks so much for being here, is going to be midlife transitions and how to scale them. Absolutely. Yeah, delighted to be here, Aviva. Thank you so much for having me. I can't think of anybody better on this topic because you're just about as obsessed about it as I am, which is really pretty rare to find. I think I might just be. It's true. (laughs) We had a very, very long conversation and share an interest in exploring how to ensure not just longer lives, but I love the Phoenix Insight tagline of better, longer lives. So I think we both recognize that a key pillar to this is to keep people engaged in work or meaning or purpose or something that gets them up and out of bed in the morning. And why do you think this is so important? I know why I do. And what does it impact if we get it right? Well, I suppose I feel quite strongly that we have experienced and continue to experience this hugely profound demographic transition that the demographers like to call stage four of our demographic transition from life being nasty, brutish and short you know, pre-19th century that's, through that's to, stage, you know... So stage one is nasty, brutish and short. Exactly, exactly. Then into stage two, where you begin to start to have higher birth rates, you start to begin to see uh, childhood mortality dropping. Then into stage three, where you begin to see the population starting to age and you see actually older mortality declining and death beginning to creep further out. Still, though, you know, reasonably high birth rates, but we're in stage four now, really low birth rates lots of progress on both childhood and adult mortality that means we're in this hugely much older population. And that's driven, you know, not just by large cohorts of people being born at certain ages and surviving for much longer than their parents and grandparents might have done, but also driven by our longer lives as individuals, a totally different potential life course for all of us as individuals. And and we're sitting, I feel very strongly that we're sitting in a world now where that gift of longer lives has been gifted to us, and yet we're not remotely geared up in terms of our social structures, our public policy, or quite frankly, our own attitudes and, you know, and cultural beliefs 
and or even, uh, even awareness that we've been gifted. <laughs> Indeed. To, you know, to begin to make the most of those opportunities. And, and in that environment, the people that get to make the most of those opportunities are the people, you know, at the top end of the socioeconomic spectrum who, who have a, been afforded every, every opportunity and every luck throughout these long lives. And if we're really going to enable this gift of longer lives to be something that we can all enjoy, we need to think quite radically about all stages of that life and about all of the sorts of structures of our, of our social contracts and our welfare state, public policy, our business practice, and the changes that we need to make across all of those areas if we're really actually going to make, as I say, this opportunity available to everyone. Why are we focusing, you know, we're talking longer lives, stage four, many, many more older people. And yet here we are, the two of us, talking and focusing really on midlife. Why? Mm. Well, the beauty, I suppose, of what's happened to us in terms of, you know, these gifts of public health, of nutrition, of sanitation, of medical science, is that we're not just living longer lives than our previous parents and grandparents' generations, but they are broadly healthier, longer lives. Now, of course, that's a generalization. And we know over the last 10 years or so in the UK, and I think that's a pattern that's, that's replicated in different extents. Actually, in some, in some cases, they're not, not as badly as we face it here in the UK. You know, not an experience that everybody gets to enjoy. And lives are actually sicker and shorter than they were 10 years ago if you're in our poorest tenth of our population. It's, very, it's a broadly distribution. Very unequal. You know, health inequalities are bad and they're getting worse in this country. And so it's not just sort of experience of life, but actual length of life that differs so, so greatly between rich and poor. But that notwithstanding, in general, these lives are healthier. So I think it's absolutely critical when we think about longer lives that we don't fall into that trap of thinking about it as being, being old for longer, but we think about it as living our whole life for longer. Laura Carstensen from Stanford University, she has this lovely playwriting metaphor that I really enjoy where she says, you know, imagine you've written a 75 minute play, the hopefully fairly obvious analogy being every year of that life is your sort of minute of your play. You've written your 75 minute play and the producer comes along and she says, you know what, you can have another 20 minutes. You can have your play last 95 minutes now. You know, what would you do as the playwright of your story? Would you just string out the final scene? Or would you actually look across the whole of your plot and think about where do you add more story, more depth, more time? And that's, I think, how we need to think about longer lives. Yeah, that's really good. And it really does resonate with the fact that what we're seeing is that so many people, when they hit this 50s, early 60s moment, really face some unexpected transition. And we're, we're, we are slowly discovering, I think, on an individual level, at least, that decades of healthy life ahead does raise a whole bunch of emotional questions and all these unexpected pressures emerge. And what's funny about that stage is it feels a little bit like a tsunami or a perfect storm of lots of different changes. A lot of people are facing retirement, early retirement, redundancies being forced out, the beginnings of some issues of health, suddenly emptiness of children or caring for elders or loss of elders, all these individual life quakes that seem to come in layers very suddenly at this age. I'm just curious, what it, is that true? What does the data say? Is that more of a, just an individual perspective? No, I think it is true, but it's, of course, very different 
for different groups of people. It's different for men and women. It's different for people who've worked in, in different industries and for people in, in different family structures and family dynamics, of course. So I think, for example, there are grandparents in their 50s and there are people still with teenagers in their 50s and, you know, therefore experiencing quite different combinations of those transitions. So, of course, there's no single course to this longer life. And almost that's the point, isn't it? That a really simplistic model of, you know, you start with childhood and you do your education, then you start with all your work and raising a family, and then you have a chunk of leisure at the end in retirement. That's just not reality for anybody, really. Nobody is that sort of median, that median person anymore. But I think, you know, itself is generalized. The Almost everybody seems, at least around me, to bump into this time of unexpected turbulence. They thought they were grown up. They expect to be grown up. And they're sort of surprised at themselves at how much sudden self-questioning, redirecting, and things are happening at them and to them and in them that they weren't really prepared to face, I find. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what I think is so interesting just at the moment? is the extent to which we may actually be collectively experiencing some of this at all ages coming out of our experience of the pandemic too. So we've been doing some work at Phoenix Insights looking at participation in the labour market, looking at staying in work or leaving work. And what role, we've been looking at a lot of things, but one of the things we've been looking at is is what role has the pandemic played in people's thinking about their working life and their future and and their decisions around work. And I think that inflection point that you describe people reaching perhaps in that transition between quarter two and, and quarter three of their lives, but that sort of fundamental re-questioning of what's my purpose, what am I enjoying, what do I want out of my day, my life, my year, is something actually not unique to a particular life stage at the moment, but something an awful lot of people have been experiencing and thinking about. And, and what we found in the UK in terms of the experience of work is that there is a population of people in their 50s and 60s who have looked at their experience of work, looked at the state of their finances and thought to themselves, you know what, I just, I don't see this working for me anymore. Work isn't working for me anymore. And so we've had this phenomenon of this great exit from the labour market of hundreds of thousands of people which, which um, in this age group. countries have faced, but what's so interestingly unusual about the UK is they haven't come back. Everywhere else, they seem to have more or less returned to the workforce, and the UK seems yeah. quite distinct. Why, why is that? Any ideas? Well, crudely, I think there's a handful of reasons. I think partly there's a group here who can afford it. So there's a group here who own their homes outright, and that's something that's a phenomenon in, that I'm sure you're well aware of in this country that we don't see, you know, replicated in the same ways in other parts of the world, but who now see themselves with actually really very, very low housing costs. Also, a group of the population who have really decent pensions, final salary pensions that are a thing of the past outside yes. of the public sector in this, in this country, but do guarantee generally more generous pensions that are guaranteed for the rest of your life. You put those two things together. And you combine them critically with disengagement from work and a sense that work isn't providing the meaning, the purpose, the sort of place in people's whole lives that they want it to. And they'll take that opportunity to leave. So I think there's that group. As I say, there's another group here who perhaps can't afford it, but have still experienced disengagement 
from work and who can't see how working in ways that they used to work is something they're prepared to keep doing or want to keep doing. This is a group, I think, who we are beginning to see unretire through dint of, of essentially being forced to do that as a result of experiencing our cost of living crisis and our very high rates of inflation at the moment in this country. The worry, of course, for me there is that there's a, you know, there's a group here who, who do now realize they need to get back to work and they can't yep. because we know, as I'm sure you know well, that people in their 50s and 60s face levels of age discrimination Absolutely. in applying for jobs that make returning to the labor market a huge challenge. You've got really, we've got really poor re-employment outcomes for that age group. Very in this country, of, yeah, very reminiscent of what women faced after motherhood. Really, really, and then let, finally, the you know the last group of people here who've left work are people who are too sick, and so we have huge backlogs in our national health service at the moment. People waiting for support with long term conditions for operations that they need. That means we're seeing a real trend in long term sickness being the reason that people are explaining why they can't get back to work. So either they're rich enough or they're sick enough. Or they're disengaged too much to actually want to return. That's so, it, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, some very interesting work, which we have on another podcast with a couple of professors from Harvard on in the U.S., the massive numbers of that actually being also true in the U.S. People who don't work mm. in their 50s can't ever be fully reemployed or are never fully reemployed in their 60s, which really puts to bed a little bit this whole theory that we are all going to have these longer, more engaged working lives. So, Doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and for me, it just calls into question or makes me reflect on almost how fantastical the policy debate that you see being played out, for example, in a country like France, being played out on the streets with riots no. just in this last month about you know, a government response to longevity being to kind of slowly ratchet up the access to a publicly funded state pension on the basis of a sort of chronological age based on rising average life expectancy. Of course, in, in France, they're talking about moving that state pension age from 62 to 64. In this country, it's already 66 and timetabled to go up further. And those ages are so far removed from when chunks of our workforce leave and never come back, either, as we were saying, through choice but often not through choice. That means, I think, you know, that any claim that, you know, from politicians or, or government that, that they're kind of protecting themselves from longevity risk or, or managing the impact of our longer lives on public finances through this kind of easy system of just changing the age at which the people access the state pension, it's a fantasy, really, because it doesn't equate at all to the reality of people's working lives at the moment people's working lives and companies' readiness to actually engage in that theory and hire them um, and allow them to continue working. Although I think we will see over time, I mean, that's a giant experiment we're living all together, right, is what happens yeah. when there aren't enough young people to power the economy. So this returns us to our conversation around, so what do you do earlier on in midlife to actually enable people? Can you do anything? And governments, can they scale any kind of response? And I'm very intrigued that you, you are 
have been putting together something called a midlife coalition. So what are you trying to find out? What are you trying to research? And what have you been learning so far? Well, I suppose my interest lies particularly in a kind of bucket of interventions that you might variously call a career review or careers advice or work coaching or employment support, lots of different types of interventions and words for them, I think, in that bucket. But I suppose my hunch, my hypothesis is that And I think I have some good evidence of really enormous latent demand, actually, for this in the population, is that people would hugely benefit as individuals, that UK PLC and our economy would would hugely benefit in turn, both as a sort of collection of employers and businesses, but also as our public finances, if people were supported to consider their careers and what they want out of them in midlife and empowered with the tools for self-reflection and motivation and the steps to take to do something different for themselves. That's my hunch. That's my hypothesis. I think there's evidence evidence abounding from all sorts of corners that this would be hugely valuable. So many projects and interventions, though, have come and gone and had their moment and fallen away because the big question of in whose interest is it to provide an intervention like this? You know, who's going to pay? And I think, you know, that is what explains why various previous pilots and attempts launching midlife career reviews, for instance, in this country have founded. And I think it lies at the heart of, of what we need to solve if we're going to really enable more people to access something like this. So. Yes, my Midlife Career Coalition is really an attempt to bring lots of like-minded souls together who perhaps come from slightly different you know, walks of life. They might take slightly different perspectives on this question and they might describe this intervention in a different way. It might even be something different. It might be something more sort of deep about personal psychology, about motivation, about overcoming barriers, or it might be something really practical about assess your skills and here are some places to go to think about new jobs. So there's a big spectrum, I think, here of interest, but to try and solve for what I think could be a really transformative intervention to enable people to live better, longer lives. It's really interesting because it really is a question then of working on what is it? Like, what are we talking about? What is this intervention? Even beyond, you know, who pays and provides it, It's what is it actually that people really need? And I find that fascinating. It's a little bit like an echo of the pandemic itself that forced people to stop for quite a long time or pause and think about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And so I almost see it like a funnel, right? There are, it is deeper initially, like who am I now at this age and stage? And then all the way through to the careers piece. But I think it'll be very interesting to explore with all these different people in a really cross specialization sort of way, what it could be imagined as an injection at this stage of life. I hope so. And I'm delighted to have you involved in that project, Aviva. I think you're going to have a huge amount to, um, to offer to the conversation. I have a background in my long past 
careers-wise in um, issues of public health and tobacco control. And I see a, a different parallel yep. also in when you think about, you know, something like smoking cessation and how a really high quality smoking cessation support service identifies, well, what is it that's stopping that person? What is it that's making that person keep smoking? Yeah. And it will be really different for different people. Yeah. And sometimes an individual just needs to be, you know, given some nicotine patches and a sort of slap around the head to get on with the thing they know they want to do anyway. For others, that's they're so far away from that. And they need to have support to really think about what role does smoking play in their lives and their happiness and their well-being and what what else could serve that purpose, you know. So I think uh, it's going to be different for different individuals, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so a really strong warning that there will, it's very unlikely that there will be a one size fits all on anything resembling the sort of midlife transition programs. There'll probably be a raft of solutions that will adaptive, which brings me interestingly to a conference, a a first time conference, charmingly called Postcards for Midlife that's coming up this May. And you are organizing a sub panel right around this midlife coalition. Who's attending? What's it all about? What are you hoping to do there? Well, I mean, we thought in the spirit of sort of test and learn, if you like, and trying to explore this latent demand and what different services could look like. We did some polling and some research with um, with the general public and we landed on women in midlife as being a group who might be particularly open to this sort of initiative and might particularly benefit from it and came across these two ex-BBC journalists who run a fabulous, really fun podcast called Postcards from Midlife. And they are having their first ever live event. They actually call it not a conference, but a festival, a midlife festival for women in London in, in May. And I became excited about the opportunity to make sure that that event celebrating everything important to midlife women was not purely an exercise of find your perfect cut of your jeans and have a free yoga block and here's a face cream. But <laughs> and, really, and your menopause HRT strategy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, but has something to say about work and careers. And so we've been working with them to bring you personally, Aviva, I think, if anybody's around on Friday the 19th of May to come to Islington to, to hear you speak about this, that would be just fabulous. But others too, who will be offering some workshops and some other sorts of some services and interventions to help that audience explore what would reviewing my career in midlife mean for me? How would I want that to happen? And what would doing that give me? I can't resist asking why why women and why are they more open or more interested? And well, I don't have an answer to that question. I just I'm I just know it from the data that I know that they are. You know, we when we when we did some of this work testing different messages, testing different interventions with different groups of the population, there was there was a, you know, a small but statistically significant difference between men and women saying that they would find it beneficial and useful. Why do you think it is, Aviva? I don't know. Are we more are we more reflective as a as a sex? I don't know. I don't know. Do we think, are we perhaps we're... experiencing some things in our lives about returning to work after children or children leaving home that that impact us more deeply than than our male partners? I don't know. I think it's a, a myriad of things, and I think women yeah. go to the doctor much more readily that they go for help yeah. much more readily. And I think it's actually really. One of the dangers I see is that women will reach out to get this kind of help and a lot of men won't. 
and they need it equally in my experience yeah. of working and speaking with them. And so I think the fact that there's reluctance and it's you, I think, were the one who told me they don't like the word midlife. Men don't really identify with that no. vocabulary. No. And so there's also a, an issue of framing and all that. But anyway, I'm very happy to start with women, get, get started on the digging. And that's what, actually, you're, you're a great example of this. So I, I want to turn a little bit to your own story. I mean, you've been in the longevity space for a long time, despite your extraordinarily young age. What, what first, <laughs> how did you get hooked on this? Well, a long time ago, actually. I think it really started for me when I was an undergraduate at, at university. I ran a, a music club on a Sunday afternoon for a local residential home. And we bought these fabulous student musicians, you know, absolutely, they're probably, you know, wowing concert mm-hmm. halls around the world as adults nowadays. These fantastic student musicians in to run little concerts on a Sunday afternoon. And I met, a, met lots of people through that. And one was a woman who really stayed with me because she opened up over the time that I spent running that, that club to me and admitted that she was lonely and that she'd lived there for 10 years. Now, that's an experience that doesn't happen much in in the social care residential sector in this country anymore. But back then in the 90s, it, it did. She'd been there for 10 years. I think she'd been widowed for 20 now, about, which was about as long as she'd ever been married, by the way. She was just reaching a point of transition from yep. being widowed for longer than she'd ever been married. She'd been retired, of course, for a long time too. But she had so much to give as an individual. And so I enjoyed her company you know, so hugely. And I suppose in my 19-year-old, extremely condescending, patronizing ageist way, I felt deeply sorry on her behalf and felt like we were giving up on her. And I didn't really understand why we were. So it, it began from a place of, of thinking about older age. And then I've had since then a career in charities and think tanks, you know, exploring all of these sorts of issues. I think hopefully becoming slightly less ageist and slightly less condescending. As I've got older, certainly more sort of nuanced, <laughs> certainly more kind of nuanced in my understanding of, of all of these things. But, but I guess the sort of core interest remains this idea that I find, you know, personally very motivating for me in my working life, that whether you go back to sort of Edward Jenner inventing the smallpox vaccine in the 18th century or, or you know, Richard Dole, the epidemiologist, demonstrating the link between lung cancer and smoking or, you know, John Snow and his discovery of, of the water pump and cholera in between, we've been given, thanks to all of these extraordinary moments and periods of human ingenuity, this, this gift of longer lives. And it is beholden on us to sort ourselves out so that we actually make the most of them and don't, as so many of us do whenever we're asked, fear the prospect of a long life. So I suppose from all of those different you know, parts of my life, I'm left still with that driving ambition that Certainly my children, I have two daughters now. I want them to grow up in a country that genuinely supports them to live to 100 and live that life well all the way through. And I don't think we're there yet. And that's what I, I enjoy working on. So if I'm going to personalize this a bit further, and before we have to wait to get for your daughter's life, I'm still looking at yours. You're still in Q2. <laughs> and I'm just curious, what have you learned that you might apply to your own planning and preparing for your Q3 and Q4 in this country as it currently stands? Gosh, I suppose, I mean, for me, really personally, I think I've been struck as I've journeyed through Q2 and got married and 
had my children and begun to raise them. I think one thing that's really struck me is I sort of thought at the beginning of Q2 that I'd reached a kind of settling point of of adult of proper adulthood, you know, of knowing myself and not being that kind of teenage, early 20s bag of insecurities and desperate confusion, but feeling pretty okay. And what I've been delighted to experience is that that only gets better, that only gets stronger, that sense of self and that sense of, of kind of emotional regulation and insecurity. That's been my personal journey. And that, that gives one, I think, an extraordinary sense of of solid foundations on which then to launch yourself upon the universe in in ways that you personally choose. So I can totally see in the most positive of of terms how Q3 could really only get better. Could only get better. Well, and that's certainly what we're starting to observe for a lot of a lot of especially women, if we're talking about women who've built really solid foundations in Q2, is that Q3 is really their time to flourish and impact the world with the dreams and ambitions they carried. So for all that you have done and researched and listened, any advice for the other Q2ers who might be listening to us? Gosh, take a breath and you've got lots more time than you think you have, perhaps, I think would be key. You know, don't feel like you've got to keep hanging on at work by your fingernails when actually there are other things in life that matter to you right now. I think the world of work is changing. And I think employers are beginning to understand that returning from breaks is going to be something they're going to have to get used to much more than just a few months out for maternity leave. You know, that experiencing a need for flexible, for part-time work, for high-quality Part-time work is something that the employees of all ages are going to be increasingly asking for and businesses, good businesses who want to grow and succeed in the 21st century are going to need to step up and respond to that demand. So I think, yeah, I think don't kill yourself right now. Pace yourself. Uh, take a breath and know that there's plenty of time. Yeah. Okay, so they have plenty of time. What are we going to tell Q3ers? Gosh, well, I'm not there yet. So I can't speak from truly, truly personal experience, although I think, I think I'm getting there. I suppose it would be for me personally, you don't feel the need to subscribe to either your parents or anybody else's definition of purpose and, and success and fulfillment and, and achievement in a life course. If you're surrounded by people who feel success is early retirement at 55, those people probably might wish they hadn't felt like that by the time they're 65 and be wondering what they're going to be doing with themselves. So I suppose I hope certainly that I, you know, continue to grow in confidence to set my own course and to, much though I wouldn't want my daughters to hear this, but not listen to my parents or my parents' experiences and realize that, you know, every generation is going to have different opportunities and need to find their own way. So, Catherine, I think that was a lovely postcard from midlife. So, Q2ers, learn to breathe and pace. Q3ers, become yourself. Finally, you know, it's time. Don't listen to all the pressures all around, which are strangely still present at this age and stage. So thank you so much for joining us and all the wisdom. I really look forward to this event and the coalition and the sharing. I'm really curious to define it 
whatever it, it is that we mean by midlife. Or the many it's, perhaps the many it's. Or the multiple it's and the, mm-hmm. you know, the multiple stakeholders who will be creating them. So thank you for all your research and leadership in this space. Thank you so much for having me, Aviva. It's been an absolute honor to join you on the podcast. Thanks again. Ambiento. Until next time, somewhere in midlife. Indeed. Bye-bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>